Remember when you started hearing all the 2020 election noise and thought, God, just how soon do we really need to start into this? Didn't we just have an election? Well, it's time to pay attention. With just over three months until the Iowa caucus, a pending impeachment, and a foreign policy debacle, it's time to get off your ass, decide if you're part of determining your country's future or not. And I don't mean doing the bare minimum of hitting the polls on voting day. I mean doing some work and being engaged. Found out we had a lot more in common. Raising money from anyone in the middle. Buzzsaw of, of lobbyists. Think Trump is a master of distraction. Get their hands on nuclear weapons. Is Let's stop talking about bathrooms. Our issues are easier for people to understand. Welcome to the American Centrist, Episode 4. We're going to catch up on the elections and see what we can learn about this mess in Syria. I'm your host, Lou. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your input as we develop this conversation. So please keep sharing your ideas with us. Let me know what topics you want us to dive into and what you think about what you've heard from us so far. You can do so at CentristPod on Twitter or our website, TheAmericanCentrist.com. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast provider of choice. With me, of course, our co-hosts, Jeff and Dave, they're here to help us make sense of all the political maneuvering and see what really matters. So if you're new to the show, please listen to the first few episodes to get a sense of where the guys stand on a few topics. Jeff, Dave, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having us. Okay, so impeachment from where I sit seems to be falling a little flat, and the Syrian pullout seems to smell like Afghanistan in 89. With those things flooding the news, have the 2020 candidates been put on the back burner, and is that good for them? Well, I don't know that the candidates have been put on the, the back burner. Trump continues to do a masterful job at sucking all the oxygen out of the national news coverage. Um, now, oftentimes it's for things that he should not be sucking all the oxygen out of the out of the air for, but you know he he just consumes so much attention. Uh, we we did have a debate. Uh, in the last week, uh, I think that it was kind of a consequential debate, certainly for a couple of the candidates that have made a name for themselves and have a little wind in their sails at this point, namely Senator Klobuchar from Minnesota and uh, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg uh, from Indiana. And uh, they came to Iowa after their uh, debate performances and had big crowds around the state. There's been lots of stories about the momentum that they've gained. And uh, it was interesting that really they both were kind of playing off Senator Warren for the first time. And this is the first debate where she was the front runner and uh, garnered the attention of a typical front runner, which Joe Biden had been getting most of the arrows in the in the previous debates. Okay. Yeah. Being the front runner as a double-edged sword, we've seen this in uh, both parties. You, you, you tend to become the pincushion for everybody else. Um, and it is interesting that 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 debate was consequential. Uh, it was a pretty big night, and it it was a marked departure from the two night debates where you really couldn't learn a whole lot about this. This was all the major candidates, and uh, to me, it it still only lasted about a day or two because, as Jeff points out, you you know the the Trump White House is just a fire hose of things coming at you all the time and it, it he is he changes the subject for good or bad uh almost immediately away from his opponents it's it's, it's incredible okay so i want to i want to just do a quick uh recap of some of the candidates and and we'll just go back and forth between you guys of the front runners who do you think has the best chance of actually winning in the general not necessarily who's polling best right now well i i think the reason why Joe Biden has been as resilient 
as he has been throughout this campaign so far, uh, is that most Democrats view him as the best possible Democratic nominee to defeat Trump. Everyone was expecting his numbers to fall off when he got into the race. People were expecting it to fall off every single month since then, and he's remained remarkably strong because people still view him as the candidate most likely to beat Trump in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. As long as he maintains that kind of perception, I I think he will continue to lead. That's a question that has been moving in Senator Warren's favor. Uh, At the beginning of this campaign, she was not viewed as the most likely candidate to beat Trump. But as she's gained popularity, when you ask people, is she more likely to beat Trump, her number continues to improve, which I think is kind of interesting. Uh, So her campaign is wearing well on people. Um, And then, you know, I think you got to take a look at, at some of these other Candidates, they don't often get more than two or three candidates when they do a general election matchup in a place like we just had a poll recently in Minnesota. There have been polling in Pennsylvania, but usually they match Trump up with either Warren, Biden or or Sanders at this point. So, so Dave, how do you feel about the top front runners? Who do you think has the best chance of getting the, you know, the moderate Republican on their side? Well, I think the Trump people have pretty clearly uh, signaled who they don't want to run against, which is. Vice President Biden. And you can tell that by the actions of Rudy Giuliani and the president over the last several months trying to you know, go around the world digging up dirt on Hunter Biden and, and kind of really- G, and, yeah, and the chief of staff. And, and, and lots of people in on that uh, operation. But I think there's a, you know, it, it's pretty clear that the, the Trump campaign prefers Elizabeth Warren as a contrast. I think they think that she's too liberal. Um, I think they 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 feel like she will. Uh, I, I think Trump likes what's familiar. He he ran against Hillary Clinton. I think he'd like to run against Elizabeth Warren. I think his he he feels like he'll project more strength. But also, um, you know, I think they kind of, you know, they they know that the vice president has, uh, you know, a lot of political skill. Uh, I think what we're seeing right now, though, is that is maybe some of those skills are coming into question. I don't think he's been as strong as. As he could have been, uh, you know, fighting off the Hunter Biden thing. I don't think he's been as steady in these debates as as people might have expected him to be. And so, uh, there's a little bit of a problem for Biden. I think matching the expectations that he has. Jeff's right. He's kept right at the top of the polls, and he's had a lot of durability. Uh, I'm not sure his performance is matching it. Um, you know, every time he goes out, and I do think, you know, they they should have had a better plan for the Hunter Biden question in particular. It seems like it's taken them three or four weeks to really get their legs under them and and figure out how to fight back on that. Okay. So I want to take a second and look at some of the candidates who are polling below 10% right now. And while they're maybe not necessarily as likely to get the the nod, who in that in that tier do you think would stand a, a really solid chance against Trump in a general election? Well, uh, you know, you, you have a, a, a number of candidates who have shown, I, I think, a lot of promise. We already talked about Mayor Pete Buttigieg from uh, Indiana. Uh, I think he is impressing people every every time he gets on that debate stage. Um, he's doing a good job in his day-to-day campaigning. Amy Klobuchar has proven to be a solid campaigner, and, and uh, this poll that just came out in Minnesota had her at 55 and Trump at 40 in Minnesota. And as I mentioned before, 
if we can find a nominee who can beat Trump in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, the Democrats are going to win the White House. So uh, she makes the argument that she's the the best candidate for uh, for the Rust Belt in the Midwest. Um, I also think a guy who doesn't get a lot of attention, uh, the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, uh, would be a very difficult matchup for Trump. And unfortunately, he's just not as well known as a lot of these other candidates. He hasn't raised the funds that a lot of the other candidates have. Uh, but he was elected on the, in the same year that Trump was on the ballot in 2016. Trump won Montana. Governor Bullock won Montana. Uh, he has the ability to attract Trump voters, and I, I think he would present uh, a real headache for for the team Trump. So, if you had to uh, back just just one of them, put your money on the table, which ones are going to be of those three? I sort of think because of the generational uh, argument that he makes, uh, Mayor Pete might be the most interesting nominee for the Democrats. Dave. Who, who do you like in that sub 10% tier? I mean, I, I kind of agree with Jeff on this. I, I also think uh, Senator Bennett from Colorado probably deserves a mention, but if you can't raise enough money or get enough polling to get on the debate stage, there's really nothing uh, nothing else you can do. Um, I tend to agree about Amy Klobuchar. I think she is going to have uh, – I, I think she's got, she, she's got the most upside in Iowa, potentially Cory Booker as well. He's just so good – on the stump. And the more he gets out and gets in front of decent sized crowds, he's got a ton of enthusiasm. He is a very articulate and, and sort of compelling speaker. I think that helps him. I think Pete Buttigieg is probably the most talent uh, of anybody in the field uh, for a debate format, for an interview format, for the town halls that he's been doing. He is just excellent. He excels in every possible way. The question will be, you know, what does the fact that he is the first openly gay uh, major presidential candidate, what what impact does that have on the electorate? Um, you know, I would like to think as a as a Republican who has you know supported marriage equality throughout my much of my career, I would like to think that that's not a factor. I'm not so sure that it won't be though. Um, so, you know, I, but I do think he has uh, immense talent. If I had to say, uh, you know, who's sort of the surest bet? To, to make a real run at some point here, I would probably say Amy Klobuchar. Uh, I think Democrats would like to nominate a woman, um, and, I, and I think that she is uh, sort of makes the most sense. Jeff's right, the geographic you know, issue is important. You know, she could, she's won the upper Midwest, a lot of those counties that, that, that flipped from, uh, from Obama to Trump are in the upper Midwest in the Mississippi Valley. She actually won Michelle Bachman's congressional district more than once. And that was, that is a very conservative congressional district. So she's proven that she can, you know, you know, win a lot of votes out of the center. Um, and she's also, you know, she's, proved in the debate last week that she's kind of tough enough to stand up and fight back when when you know when she needs to and uh, as a former prosecutor I think she has the the skills to go you know put a run an aggressive campaign against against the president so so between uh her and mayor Pete which, which one if you had to if you had to get behind just one of them which one is it well you know I mean let's also let's not discount the fact that Mayor Pete's sitting on a pile of money, and uh, and that matters. 
and she's really struggled to raise it. So uh, unless she can pull off a uh, you know a real surprise second or third place in Iowa, she probably doesn't go anywhere else. Uh, Mayor Pete, if he pulls off a second or third place in Iowa and beats expectations, he's already sitting on a load of cash. He can go to New Hampshire and and he can go to South Carolina and to Nevada and beyond, and be able to continue to compete and put up you know the resources to open the field offices and stay on the air in those places. And um, you know, I think it's it's all a matter of timing. Who gets hot when? Yeah, I I agree. I think Mayor Pete brings a lot to the table. And there was an interesting moment uh, between him and O'Rourke where they were talking about uh, Second Amendment. And I think that brings up a point where the Democrats on one side, you have, you know, mandatory buybacks and complete ban of assault rifles. Uh, On the other side, there's universal background checks and red flag laws. So on a hot button topic like this, how much are the Dems hurting themselves with undecided or moderate Republicans when it comes to picking a candidate that can win in the general election? Uh, I'll take that as the Republican. I I mean, I think, uh, first of all, I think that Mayor Pete was correct to kind of take a stand there on that issue. Uh, It's a huge vulnerability for, uh, for, for Democrats if they are perceived to be the party that wants to confiscate guns. I mean, frankly, the policy is completely unworkable. You're not, you know, he's not going to send people door to door. He just assumes people are going to surrender their guns, uh, you, you know, their assault rifles willingly. I mean, I mean, look at the passion on either side of this issue. It's just not going to work that way. You know, I think there has to be a, a, a way that we can actually figure out a way for both sides to come together on this issue, which is kind of what I think most people are hoping for, but Mayor Pete was correct in pushing back on Beto. Beto is playing to the cheap seats here. He's playing to the passion uh, on the left. Uh, his campaign is stumbling, and and he's kind of reaching for straws here. It's just not going to. It's it's a terrible idea. It's an unworkable policy, and you know I think uh, I, I don't know if he I don't know if Mayor Pete helped himself too much uh, in the primary with that answer, but he certainly helped himself in the general election. Doesn't uh, just a quick follow up. I know this will be the answer from the Republican side, but doesn't helping himself in the general help himself in the primary? Or I guess let me rephrase that. Shouldn't no. it? No, no. See, well, it should, of course. And and this is the this is the problem we have with our primaries right now. The extreme polls are pulling. You know, they're they're where all the gravity is and all the energy is and all the action is. But the truth is, it's it's a lot tougher to win a general election if you can't appeal to voters in the middle. There are voters in the middle. They matter. You know, they will sit it out. They will be turned off. If both sides are are you know pulling so hard at the extremes that they don't want to get into it, and and you know I think some primary voters do factor in electability. Obviously, that's one of the one of the arguments I think that has kept Biden uh, towards the front of the pack here. But uh, I think you know with the passion, the energy, and particularly for these struggling candidates like Beto, who came in hot and uh, and kind of fizzled, you know he's going to look for anything he can do to 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 really sort of touch off a spark among uh, the, you know, the moms demand action type of, uh, of activists. Well, I think Dave makes a good point about the, the primaries. And in fact, you know, sometimes when you make appeals that are um, most useful towards uh, the general election, most useful towards the people 
who uh, sometimes vote for the Democrat and sometimes vote for the Republican, those positions can hurt you in a primary, whether you're running in a Democratic primary or a Republican primary. Uh, probably it's more damaging in a Republican primary even than a, than a Democratic primary, uh, just the way uh, the Republican Party has lurched to the right. Um, but there is that poll is going on with the Democrats right now. And it's largely because in the presidential race, uh, if you want to be successful with fundraising online, you have to kind of feed the progressive uh, issues that um, that you can raise money on. That's why it's it's tough for someone like Senator Bennett to raise money online because he's he's not out there on issues like Medicare for all or free college or, you know, other issues that are kind of the, the hot topics online or on Twitter. But he is for free universal pre-K. Uh, it's just that issue hasn't got the same traction as some of these other ones. That that financial primary is part of being successful and getting yourself into the general election. Okay, so I want to uh, I want to shift gears a little bit here, and you know, once one of these candidates gets elected, they'll they'll have to get out there and govern. And foreign policy uh, is is going to be something they may have to clean up. So I want to take a minute and, and look at the Syria and the U.S. pullout. The U.S. has certainly been accused, and we can determine if it's true or not, uh, of abandoning allies in the past. Uh, and some might suggest that, you know, us pulling out of Syria is similar to what happened in Afghanistan in the in the late 80s that planted the seeds for al-Qaeda. So, uh, Dave, you want to start us off on that and let me know what you think? Well, I mean – it is a fraught time right now in in foreign policy. I think that the the president ha has has finally found the place where he gets the most the, the quickest and most damning condemnation from his own Republican defenders in the Congress. I think pulling out of Syria the way he did it uh, is number one. It's suspect, you know, what the reason was. It was just a phone call with uh, Erdogan that, you know, it, or just a camp trying to keep a campaign promise. It literally lost him the sec a very popular Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, uh, when he tried to do it several months ago. And, and you know, it's it's a disaster. They, they've got a uh, they got a five day ceasefire in place that ends, I think, tomorrow. And you know, does anybody think that we're not just going to go back to to live shots again on these Kurds who have been with us, uh, you know, defeating ISIS and working with us in Iraq uh, and helping us through, you know, as our partners for you know for several years in the region and and to just kind of to just pull out the way we did without any with with first of all he didn't he didn't notify his friends in congress he didn't notify anybody in the foreign policy establishment i don't even know if the defense department state department knew it was going to happen until until you know he made the announcement on twitter i just think that that kind of behavior is 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 something that maybe is not a voter issue right now but it is certainly undermining the confidence that republicans in the in the house and senate have in his leadership style quick aside i mean i, I think you can see that that President Trump distrusts the Defense Department so much that he wouldn't even give him the courtesy of telling him in advance, and he wanted him to read it on Twitter because he didn't want it to leak out. So, Jeff, taking a look at this from the Democratic side, if one of the Democratic candidates becomes president and inherits this problem, how do they deal with it? Well, uh, it, it was a complicated place before. The, our relationship with the Kurds uh, – 
goes back a long ways. And, you know, President Trump, uh, you know, was trying to um, take a shot at the Kurds after he made this decision to abandon them. And he said, um, well, where were they in World War II? Well, the Kurds have never had their own state. So as a state, uh, they weren't part of World War II. But when George W. Bush called on Iraqis to rise up against Saddam Hussein, it was the Kurds that stood up and uh, were fighting Hussein. Uh, and we you know, kind of left them hanging when uh, when Hussein then rolled tanks uh, through their through their areas. This has been going on for a long, long time. As Dave mentioned, they were partners of ours in uh, in fighting ISIL, and there there just doesn't seem to be any rationale. Like we, President Trump has given us the rationale that it's not our fight. Uh, well, ISIS is our fight. Uh, he's given us the rationale that he wants them to come home. Uh, they're not coming home. Apparently, they're going to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, so it's it is a policy decision that was not thought through. It was not communicated to our military leadership. It was not com- communicated to the Congress, and it it just seems like the only answer here is um, this is kind of where Russia wanted us to end up, and uh, they wanted to fill the vacuum that was left by the United States and, and Trump was fine uh, with that as, as the result. Yeah. Look, the, the most troubling thing here is who does this make happy? Who, who wins in this situation? Certainly not our country. Uh, you know, our troops are now pulling out in their, in their Humvees getting pelted by tomatoes and, and potatoes from these Kurds who are feeling betrayed. Um, it, it doesn't help the Kurds. There's 300,000 of them walking off into the desert right now as winter uh, looks to be setting in here pretty soon. And so who's happy? Uh, Vladimir Putin, who wants to expand his influence in Syria. Assad, who is a client of Vladimir Putin. And of course, Iran. That's who, who wins here. And it, it you know, and, and, the, Turkey. The, and, and, and of course, Turkey. They're sort of the first mover here. What's Amazing is I understand like the Trump argument that he kind of ran on this. Uh, it makes sense. Voters, uh, even at the rally the other night, were cheering wildly when he says, "I'm going to bring the troops home." But if you have to put it in context, we had 175,000 troops over there uh, it, at the height of the Iraq War and the Afghan War, and there are now maybe 15,000 total in the entire region. There's only 2,000 troops in Syria. This and, and Jeff correctly points out, they're not coming home. They're going somewhere else or they're pulling back and kind of waiting on the sidelines while the Turks do whatever they want to do. But like, I don't understand the big move to bring these troops home. There's only a handful over there. I, I can understand it when there's, you know, Almost two hundred thousand people over there, and we're losing people in a in an active shooting war in a, in Iraq or in Afghanistan. But it just it, it it is completely out of context. It's jingoism to to say I want to bring the troops home. A, you don't do it, and B, there aren't really hardly any troops over there anyway. There's a, probably a couple of dozen troops that really mattered right in that little corridor where the Turks are coming across the border. They're special forces, and they they basically were serving as a tripwire so that you know the Turks couldn't come in and start wiping out those Kurds because they're going to ultimately kill some American soldiers, which would get them into a, a lot of trouble, obviously with the with the American administration, uh, purportedly. So like that's what they were doing there. Uh, it's not you know 
they're not leaving the theater. They're going to still be over there somewhere. We've just created this situation where, you know, it's really going to lead to nothing but more problems and the reconstitution of ISIS. It's, um, and at the risk of sounding like a neocon here, I, I, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not with Lindsey Graham here, just that we want to keep uh, you know, huge numbers of troops over there uh, endlessly. But uh, it was a very delicate situation and it had been carefully uh, sort of constructed and it was working. And just because the Turks weren't happy with it, uh, shouldn't really drive our foreign policy choices because there's a lot more at stake than just the Turks being able to go in and, and take off after this segment of the Kurds that they view as terrorists. So it, it sounds like some of the troops uh, are, are going to stay behind and guard the oil fields while leaving a lot of the civilian population to deal with the Turks. So if you were to look at that situation and, and fast forward it a year, two years, do you guys see some potentially dangerous unintended consequences here? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it's kind of like the U.S. military is being used as a mercenary service for for protection of of mineral rights. And I, I just like without consideration of history, it's without consideration of the politics. Uh, I just don't understand what rationale there is for for doing that. It 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 doesn't make any sense on any level, and particularly when you think about the fact that Trump is facing an impeachment inquiry in the House, and he needs friends in the United States Senate uh, to vote to acquit, and he's offending the sensibilities of diehard Republican senators uh, who think that the U.S. has turned its back not only on the Kurds, but on the generals and the soldiers on the ground. Uh, I, I just I don't understand any basis for this, Dave. What do you think? Yeah, uh, the the unintended consequences are going to be that now there are ten thousand, maybe more, uh, ISIS fighters who are already walking away from these prisons because they're not being guarded. There are probably thirty thousand ISIS fighters in the region, and this gives them a, them an opportunity to reorganize, reconstitute, and either start taking back land. Uh, that we that were that were hard fought and hard won. By by the way, it wasn't us losing lives, you know, securing uh, this land and 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 defeating ISIS. It was the Kurds. They lost eleven or twelve thousand people. Um, it, it's just, and it goes to sort of this fundamental concept of, you know, can we be trusted to be the the sort of moral actor in the world? And this kind of a move. Uh, would indicate that we can't be trusted. At least that's the message that is is being received by the Kurds, our friends, and Israel, and others who are watching us and trying to understand what it is that would cause us to make a decision like this. If we look at this decision, it it seems like the you know uh, the the military is not necessarily in favor of it. A lot of the government is not necessarily in favor of it. It's it's really a decision from the president. A is is that assessment correct on my part, and B, if the majority uh, of the entities that should be should have some say in this don't think it's a good idea, how does the president go through the process of making it happen so quickly when a lot of people think that it shouldn't happen? 
Well, the whole the whole reason he did it the way that he did it was so that uh, he could make the announcement without having to go through a deliberative process, an interagency process, where the State Department and the Defense Department uh, were all kind of together talking through what the consequences would be and how to mitigate potential problems. Uh, you know, he he had he had tried to do this before, was stopped basically by his uh, his defense secretary. You know, I, we we kind of have to take him at what we what we've been able to see, which is that uh, for him, this is fulfilling a campaign promise. Um, we don't know what other conversations have taken place with Erdogan or with Putin or with anyone else in the region between the president or any of his representatives. So all we can do is really kind of take him from from what we have a, a visibility to, and that is that he he's telling us that he made a campaign promise, and he did, in fact, uh, that he was going to bring the troops home from the Middle East. He didn't want to fight these endless wars, and he wanted to, you know, he, he didn't want us fighting for and securing borders over there when we can't secure our own border. Now, rhetorically, it's a it's a very compelling argument, and the base is with him on this. They, you know, the people that go to those rallies, they're supporting him on this, but um, they're only listening to it in that sort of, you know, 30-second uh, soundbite uh, you know, explanation, not not really looking at what the real consequences are, which is why you've got a lot of the foreign policy establishment and and members of Congress up in arms over it. But um, you know, the reason he's doing it, it it appears is that he he's and, and I think he I take him at his word on this. He, he's apparently believed this for a very very long time. He thinks that the amount of money we spend uh, keeping troops in Germany and South Korea and in the Middle East and all over the world keeping the peace uh, is a waste of money and we're getting ripped off uh, defending other countries while they're not paying their fair share. It is a through line in what he's, how he talks about NATO, how he talks about the Korean Peninsula, how he talks about Japan. Uh, and and he, must, he must have some kind of view that American troops are mercenaries being paid for or, or in some cases not paid for adequately by other powers, but but that's that's a gross misinterpretation of what the American presence uh, is in the world, and our power uh, is is has been used for good over the last you know over half century to try to keep peace in the world uh, after a century in which we had two world wars and the loss of millions of lives on on all sides. So so Jeff, I, I want to get your take on that, but but also uh, I'm curious: is there a way? that this can be walked back against the president's wishes if it is uh, indeed dangerous for America to pull out? Well, I mean, uh, the House has rebuked this action. Uh, it will be interesting to see if McConnell takes any action in the Senate. That's that's generally been uh, the, the fallback for Trump is uh, whatever happens in the House, he, he'll be protected by McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, I think his challenge on this one is that he's got people like Lindsey Graham who have been uh, pretty adamantly supportive of anything that he wants to do are, are kind of saying, uh, this is a bridge too far for me, and they're, they're not going to go along with it. So I, I don't know if anything's going to get worked out in, in the Senate or if they're just going to send a, a message to Trump to say, we think this is a terrible decision and, and we're going to pass something. That makes that rebuke public. By the way, I'd like I'd like to jump back in here. I do I do think that uh, that Mayor Pete had 
the biggest moment on this in the debate last week. He, he spoke from the point of view of, of someone who's been over there very passionately about how these uh, soldiers now are feeling, having basically betrayed the trust of these uh, Kurds that they've been fighting alongside with. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know the appetite in the Democratic Party for that kind of a message, but I, I do believe that he, he was the most compelling sort of in the discussion of that issue at the debate a little over a week ago. So I want to change topics one more time. The slippery slope argument is in itself a slippery slope. So the right wing uses it with gun rights, the left with abortion. And with the U.S. taking steps to collect DNA from immigrants who cross between entry points and are held even temporarily with no criminal charges other than illegal crossing, are we jumping into another slippery slope as we look at a shift in how DNA is used from investigation to surveillance? Yeah, I'm going to put on my <laughs> I'm going to put on my Rand Paul hat right here and just say that this is complete and total bullshit. We should not be taking DNA from anybody in this country or wanting to come to this country. I understand what their argument I I believe I understand what their argument would be, which is that the the president has given the edict that we're going to do anything we can to deter people from coming into this country. Uh, who are not currently in this country or coming through uh, legally uh, as a part of the the legal immigration infrastructure uh, that's that's all fine and good but like when when we are now going to taking DNA samples so that we can build some sort of a profile database registry um, registry uh, I mean come on let let's let, like this is absolute insanity and any Anybody who votes for this, if this ever came, I assume this is being discussed as something to be done by executive order, but oh my God, <laughs> could you imagine? This is, talk about a slippery slope. Pretty soon we're all going to have to give our retinal scan, our fingerprints, and our DNA to the government so that we can, you know, have our, maybe we'll get chips inserted. I mean, this is a, this is not a healthy thing for a free and open society. We have laws on the books about the asylum process. If they need to be changed and fixed and worked on, that's all fine. And I think Republicans, Democrats should get together somewhere in the middle and talk about this and stop using it as a wedge issue. In the meantime, let's not go take DNA from anybody. I think maybe the Trump kids have bought into a business that uh, monetizes all this DNA. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So am I being paranoid, maybe I am, to think that as we start to normalize collection of DNA, it starts to be something that is, you know, is part of everyday American life, right? Yes. If you're going to go to school in America, we need to take your DNA. And am I paranoid to be as paranoid about that? Jeff? Well, remember, uh, r remember that. I'm old enough to remember there was a time when we thought uh, warrantless wiretaps on phone were a problem. And like that's that's nothing compared to forcing people to give up DNA so they can keep it in a database. Yeah, no, you're you're probably uh, you probably are paranoid, but sometimes uh, you should be. <laughs> this is one of those cases where I think it's warranted. I, I, I don't I don't see 
I, I do, I, I'm trying to, as, as the Republican, I'm trying to understand the justification here. And my, uh, my sense is that, that they are throwing anything they can at the wall to see, uh, uh, what they can do to deter, you know, that next potential refugee from coming to this country. And this might be one of those things that will slow it down. That's, that has to be the justification for this because, uh, it just, uh, it, it, it sounds, uh, very, um, very bad to me. I mean, it, it just, I don't, it, it is a slippery slope. We can't be going down this road. We can't be normalizing this because pretty soon we're all going to be, we're all going to be, uh, you know, in, uh, 1984. Uh, I, I just think it's, uh, ominous. Well, we already have we already have double speak, like we got <laughs> we got plenty of components of 1984 uh, in George Orwell's uh, society. The living and breathing today. has been increased to three grams again. <laughs> uh, so, any uh, any uh, last minute thoughts from you guys before we wrap things up here? No, I think uh, you know we did learn a, a little bit about. Uh, you know the finances of these presidential candidates. I thought was interesting. It's um, probably the biggest uh, the, the biggest red flag for Vice President Biden right now is that he has actually less money on hand than the Democratic candidate for Senate in Arizona, Mark Kelly, right now. And that is not a place where you want to be. Uh, at the, on the other side, you know, both uh, Warren and Sanders are raising boatloads of money, as you would expect, because these, uh, you know, progressive movements, as Howard Dean started it in, you know, in uh, 2004, it was sort of the first phenom uh, raising huge money online, and uh, Sanders last time, and and Warren uh, getting in on the act this time, but now you definitely do see a, uh, a more moderate voice, a more centrist voice, who has who has tapped into that as well with Mayor Pete, who is, um, you know, not raising quite as much, but he's competitive. So um, this last week was a, a good window into where we are in that race. Okay, Jeff, any uh, closing thoughts for you? Well, the the last thing I would say is I, I just want to take a minute to to thank everybody who's reached out and given us comments or feedback on the show. It's it's been really helpful, and uh, be sure to uh, sign up and and subscribe and and listen to the future. Um, and, uh, and watch while we kick Dave around a little bit. <laughs> Make sure you follow us on Twitter at at uh, what is our t- <laughs> what is our t- <laughs> centrist pot? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I, See, that, there's uh, a reason I do that part. I want to <laughs> <laughs> follow, follow us on Twitter. Like Pierre Delecto follows me. <laughs> All right. So I think that's where we'll wrap it up for this week. Uh, I want to thank Jeff and Dave for joining me and hopefully we've been able to share some perspective and some information. I'm going to leave you with a challenge this week, whomever you're leaning towards, be it the incumbent or someone in the democratic's field of dreams, do some oppo research. Find yourself five good reasons not to vote for the person you think you support because they're all politicians and none of them are perfect. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join the conversation on Twitter at CentristPod or TheAmericanCentrist.com. Let us know how the challenge went. And if you share some facts, please cite your source. That way we can all learn more and start voting on fact over feeling. As always, subscribe, share with your best friend and your worst enemy. Till next week. 